ബിസ്മില്ലാഹിറഹ്മാനിറഹീം Respected elders and dear brothers, in today's pre-khutbah talk, we will commence with a brief study of an outline of the history of Islam in India. Really what I'm about to share with you is a snapshot, in fact a snapshot of a snapshot of the very long history of Islam in India. we will then highlight and speak about some of the main contributions of the muslims towards the development the overall development of the indian subcontinent and we will conclude with a description of the current plight of the muslims in that part of the world according to certain historical accounts the first time islam reached india was during the lifetime sallallahu alaihi wasallam allah taala alone knows best with regards to the authenticity of these reports however existed trade relations between arabia and the indian subcontinent since ancient times even during the pre-islamic era arab traders arab merchants would visit the coastal region indian subcontinent we can confidently say based on historical reports that muslim merchants muslim traders were the first who had introduced islam to the indian subcontinent and the muslim businessman is very advantageously very strategically positioned to give da'wah and to introduce others to islam because of the extent of his travels because of the broad circle of interaction that he has allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed him with a unique opportunity through which he can introduce others to islam and we find that this was the case not only with the indian subcontinent but many parts of the world islam reached 
those areas Islam reached those distant lands through the travels that were undertaken by the Muslim businessmen and through the monetary dealings through their interaction people were so impressed and fascinated by the honesty that they had displayed that through that people were curious to know more about the deen of Islam and then eventually embraced Islam. The more popular view with regards to how Islam had arrived in the Indian subcontinent is that a personality by the name of Sheikh Ubaidullah Rahimahullah he was responsible for taking Islam to the Indian subcontinent. Who was Sheikh Ubaidullah? He was a pious and righteous Muslim businessman. He was a merchant from al Madina to Munawwara and he was a da'i, he was a preacher. He again used that of a vehicle to transport Islam to different parts of the world. And he was a descendant of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Sheikh Ubaidullah rahimahullah, he once visited Al-Masjid al-Nabawi and he fell into a deep sleep. He saw a dream in which Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had instructed him to go to distant lands from the east of Jeddah to preach Islam to the people. So he immediately embarked upon this journey. He traveled to Jeddah from Medina to Munawwara and then he undertook the lengthy journey by ship. And in the year 41 AH, 41 years after Hijrah, so approximately 30 years after the demise of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he arrived at the end of Likshadweep. Likshadweep is a group of islands that are situated off the Malabar coast. So we are now referring to the southwestern part of the Indian subcontinent. He arrived there. The moment he arrived, Sheikh Ubaidullah, he started preaching to the people on those islands. Many of them were impressed with the deen that he had brought to them. Many of them, multitudes of people embraced Islam at his hands. And up to this day, those regions and those islands are inhabited by a great majority of Muslims. We fast forward approximately 50 years later. We are now in the Umayyad Khilafah. We know that there were three eras of Khilafah. You had Al-Khilafah Al-Rashidah after the demise of Rasulullah that was followed by Al-Khilafah Al-Umawiyah, the Umayyad Khilafah and that was followed by Al-Khilafah Al-Abbasiyah, the Abbasid Khilafah. So we are now in approximately 90 AH. During the Umayyad Khilafah, the Khalifa of the time is Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik. There was a vessel, a ship that was traveling from Sri Lanka or islands around that region, it was traveling towards the Arabian land. The ship was transporting widows, majority of them on board were widows and children. And this ship was intercepted in the territory of the Indian subcontinent by pirates. They took the women who became um, targets of abuse at the hands of the kidnappers. It's a famous incident, it's recorded in the books of history. And the news of that incident reached the Khilafah, or the Khalifa of the time. And more specifically, the news and information reached one of the governors, who was the governor of Iraq, Hajjaj bin Yusuf. 
al-Thaqafi. When Hajjaj bin Yusuf heard of this, and this was not the first time that the Muslims mobilized an army to restore the dignity of a human. When he heard that these Muslim widows were captured by these pirates, immediately sends a message to the Raja, the land of Sindh, Sindh, today modern-day Pakistan. So he sends a message to him that this incident and this crime was committed in territory that belongs to you. It is your duty and responsibility to capture the pirates, to punish them for the deed that they had committed and to have the women released and transported to, to the Muslim world. Raja, his name was Raja Daher. Raja Daher, he adopted a very passive approach. He did not attach much importance to this incident. And he downplayed the whole thing and he says, Oh, Hajjad bin Yusuf, he immediately dispatched a force to fight against Raja Daher. The first army that arrived in the land of Sin, they were defeated by the Raja and his forces. Hajjad, he sends a second army. The second army is also defeated. Now Hajjaj bin Yusuf, he sends a message to the Khalifa, the Umayyad Khalifa, whose name was Al-Walid, Al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik, that I need permission from you to send an army, not just to have those women released and to capture the perpetrators of the crime, but I now wish to mobilize an army that will conquer the land of sin. He sends the message to Al-Walid, Al-Walid approves this. And who does he appoint? He appoints his son-in-law, who is also his nephew, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim, rahimahullah. Young man, how old was he? 17 years old. Fatihul Hind, the conqueror of the land of Sindh and the Indian subcontinent, a youngster who was 17 years old, brave, young man, courageous. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf identified him, that young man, as the right person for this job. And he then undertook this journey. And he was a Thaqafi. Thaqafi, he belonged to the Banu Thaqif clan. The Banu Thaqif clan, they were the governing power in Ta'if. So in Makkah al-Mukarramah, the governing power was the Quraysh. And in Al-Ta'if, the governing power was Banu Thaqif. So he was born in Al-Ta'if, this young man, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim. And he then undertook this journey with a huge force. And he traveled to the land of Sindh. He conquers the land of Sindh in 93 AH, 93 years after the Hijrah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, approximately 80 years after the demise of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Muhammad al-Qasim, Rahimahullah, he then conquers territory after territory. He defeats dynasty after dynasty, vast areas of the Indian subcontinent were governed by the Umayyad Khilafah and the Umayyad dynasty. Qasim, he passed away in his early 20s, not too many years after that. According to some, he was 20 years old. According to some, a few years after that, he had passed away in the land of Iraq. Their governance, the governance of the Umayyad Khilafah, was then followed by the rule and the governance of the Ghaznavid Empire, also Muslims under the famous Mahmud al-Ghaznavi. And they were a Turkic, not Turkish. There's a difference between Turkic and Turkish. They were a Turkic Empire, also a Muslim Empire. They ruled over the Indian subcontinent. 
their governance over that region was followed by the governance of the Ghurids. The Ghurids also a Muslim empire and they were Afghanis. Then came the era of governance of the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire, also a Muslim empire, and their rule over the Indian subcontinent was perhaps the longest governance of a Muslim force over that region. The founder of the Mughal Empire in the Indian subcontinent was Zahiruddin Babur. Zahiruddin Babur, he was a descendant of Genghis Khan, and he was responsible for building the Babri Masjid. That's why it's called the Babri Masjid, because the Babri Masjid was built by the first emperor who established the Mughal Empire in that area, whose name was Zahiruddin Babur. As I said, this is just a really very, very brief snapshot of the history of Islam in India. Let us move on to the contributions of Muslims towards the development of India. It's important for us to understand this because we are all aware of the tyranny, the oppression and the difficulties that the Muslims are suffering in that part of the world. The Muslims never came to India as colonizers. The Muslims did not come as plunderers. They did not come there to steal the resources of the people and transport it back to their land as the British had done, the colonizers had done. The Muslims came to the Indian subcontinent and to every part of the world. They came there as builders, as contributors, and they introduced the prophetic method of Al-Madinah to Munawwara wherever they went. Rasul when he arrived in Al-Madinah to Munawwara, he came as a contributor, not as a colonizer, not as a plunderer. The first thing he did, he established the masjid. He was concerned about the religious state and the masjid was more than just a place of ibadah in the time of Rasulullah But he contributed towards the people of Al-Madinah to Munawwara and the new Islamic state. After he established the masjid, he established a union of brotherhood. He turned his attention to the social fabric of the society. And he established a union of brotherhood amongst the people. And the next thing he did thereafter was what? He established the marketplace, an independent economic hub for the Muslims all over Medina to Munawwara. So he was concerned about the religious affairs, he was concerned about the social economic state of al Madinah to Munawwara. And that prophetic model is what the Muslims had used whenever they conquered a land. So we were contributors. The Muslims have contributed tremendously towards the growth, the advancement of the Indian subcontinent. And that is something that can never be forgotten. That is something that the books of history will always record and always remember. So again, the contributions are too many to mention, but we will just um, focus on a few highlight some of the main contributions that the Muslims had made in that land. The greatest contribution by the Muslims was the religious one. There is no greater contribution than that contribution. Introducing were immersed in shirk, who were immersed in a polytheistic and oppressive system to introduce to them a system that was designed and perfected by Allah. That is contribution that the Muslims could have made to whichever land they had traveled to. Rib'i bin Amir, radiallahu ta'ala, 
the famous Sahabi of the Prophet when he arrived in the land of so the Persian emperor whose name was Rustam, Rustam called for him and sent for him and Rustam asked him a question he said to him Ma jaa bikum? why have you come to our land again the Muslims were contributors we were builders we were not plunderers imperialists what has brought you to our land O Ribri bin Amir look at the response it was the prophetic model that was consistently consistently implemented by the conquerors the Muslim conquerors who conquered different regions around the world Ribri bin Amir said to him Allah has sent us why Allah has sent us so that we may deliver people and liberate them from the servitude of man to the servitude of Allah. We have been sent, Allah has sent us to liberate people and to release them and deliver them from the cruel, unjust, unfair systems of the world and introduce them to the just system of Islam. Allah has sent us to liberate people from the constraints of this world and introduce them to the vastness of Al-Akhirah. That was the prophetic model that the conquerors of the Indian subcontinent had implemented when they arrived there. So that was the greatest contribution that the Muslims had made to the Indian subcontinent. Secondly, the rights of women were restored. There were some really unjust, outrageous systems that discriminated against the women. There was a practice amongst them that when a man had died amongst them, then religiously she had to burn herself to death. That was her way of mourning the death of her husband. So Islam came, when Islam arrived there, it restored not just the rights that were awarded to women, but their honor, their dignity, their worth and their value were awarded to them. And this was the lifelong concern of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We are in the month of August. August is referred to as Women's Month. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did not confine awareness to the rights of women to one month only. It was his lifelong concern. Always, he used every opportunity to create awareness to the rights of women. women. What about the dignity? One is the rights that are awarded to them. What about the dignity that they deserve? The honor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has awarded to them. Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made this his lifelong concern. And this was one of the greatest contributions that the Muslims had made to the Indian subcontinent to restore the dignity, the honor that were awarded to the women and most importantly the rights that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given them. The architectural contributions. There are hundreds. For those of you who might have traveled to India and so on and so forth, you know of the many architectural contributions that the Muslims had made to that part of the world. And of course, the most prominent of all is the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal it was built by a Mughal emperor whose name was Shah Jahan. Shah Jahan, a Muslim Mughal emperor, he was the one who built the Taj Mahal in memory of his wife, Mumtaz Mahal. Then of course, how can we forget the contributions of the great leader, Aurangzeb Alamgir, the son of Shah Jahan. So Shah Jahan is the one responsible 
for building the Taj Mahal, he had a son, Aurangzeb Alamgir, Rahimahullah. He made mistakes, religiously and politically, but those mistakes were something that him become one of the best Muslim leaders that we have seen, Aurangzeb Alamgir. Today you will find that the ruling party, they will level the most amount of criticisms against him. Why? Because he was a pious leader. He turned out to be a very pious leader, a just ruler, and perhaps the most salient of his contributions to the Indian subcontinent was he introduced a system that made Islam the governing law, that made Islam the governing rule, whilst at the same time, while at the same time awarding every person of every other faith the rights that they deserve. He introduced this inclusive system while Islam was the overarching and the law of the land. He did not exclude others who belonged from others, did not discriminate against them. He ensured that their rights were given to them. Then of course, we can never forget the contribution of the Muslims in the struggle for independence in India against the colonizers, against the British, who were at the forefront. The Muslims were at the forefront and more specifically the ulama. If you look at Darul Ulum Diyoban, it is a product of the liberation struggle. Great, great ulama, great students of deen. And you have philosophers, thinkers, activists who literally laid their lives down during the liberation struggle. You had Hazrat Maulana Mahmoud al-Hassan, rahimahullah, of Darul Ulum Diyoban. Hazrat Maulana Hussain Ahmed Madani, rahimahullah, who was the Shaykh al-Hadith of Darul Ulum Diyoban. He was the senior most lecturer at Darul Ulum Diyoban. You had Maulana Ubay, rahimahullah ta'ala anhu. Great personalities. They were in the forefront against the British and against the colonizers. How can we ever forget the contribution they made during the liberation struggle? The activist Abul Kalam Azad, the famous poet, the philosopher and thinker Muhammad Iqbal. These are just some of the many contributions. We come to the current plight of the Muslim population in India. Though the Muslims are a minority, they account for about 15% at an estimated figure of approximately 200 million Muslims. So they are the largest minority that exists in India. This is India alone. Not taking Pakistan into consideration, not taking Bangladesh into consideration, Nepal. India alone, you have this sizable, huge part of the Ummah there, 200 million Muslims. But since the BJ party came into power, and the BJ party, they have always pursued a Hindu nationalist agenda since they were elected. Now we must add that not every Hindu, not every non-Muslim, not every Sikh supports this agenda of the BJP party, the ruling party. That's the first thing we need to add. Secondly, what we need to add is the aggression that is directed towards the Muslims in that part of the world should not be a means and should not be a reason for us to seek to incite aggression against others here living in our own country. But we need to bring these atrocities to the attention of the Muslim Ummah. And we need to know of what is happening in a land where 
both of us belong to an ethnicity which has its roots deeply rooted in that land. Systematic discrimination. They face prejudice and violence despite the conflict. The government has pushed controversial policies that and most outrageously ignore Muslims' rights and are intended to alienate millions of Muslims. Let us just consider a few incidents. Few incidents that have transpired and taken place in the recent past. A 25-year-old Muslim man was beaten to death in UP province, Uttar Pradesh. A 5-year-old Muslim girl was raped by a 40-year-old Hindu man. This also happened in the UP province. In the past, Wallahi, on more than one occasion, the Muslim Khalifa, the Muslim leader, mobilized an entire army. We mentioned this earlier. To preserve, to protect, and to restore the dignity of a Muslim woman. Here you have a five-year-old girl, and this is one incident out of many. She is raped, she is robbed of her dignity at such a young age. And there is no one out there but Allah who will provide her comfort in dunya and akhirah. A Hindu mob forced a minor Muslim girl to remove her hijab and then sexually assaulted her on camera. A Hindu railway guard uh, recently, where a Hindu railway guard, he first murdered his colleague and then he hunted down three Muslim passengers and shot them dead. He then praised the BJP ruling party. We all learned of the desecration of the, of the masjid recently in a predominantly Hindu suburb. A, a masjid was completely desecrated and the masjid was almost destroyed and razed to the ground. And the Imam, a young man, 19-year-old Imam was murdered. This happened a few weeks and his brother, after the incident had taken view, he says it seems as if they tried to behead him, to remove his head from his body. This incident was followed by burning of businesses by locals and then the demolition of homes and properties by the government. The government themselves, after this incident transpired there, they began demolishing businesses, hotels that belonged to certain Muslims and even destroying their homes. In the most recent incident of discrimination, this happened last week, local non-Muslims, they marched through the business district of Muslims, businesses belonging to Muslims, and they demanded that all Muslim businesses should be boycotted, and they threatened the Hindus who supported Muslim-owned businesses. This again is just a few of the incidents and few of these events of discrimination against Muslims in that part of the world. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the objective is just to, to draw awareness on the current situation Muslims in that part of the world, so that we are aware of it and we make dua for them. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant them afiyah, to restore the izzah, the dignity and the honor of our Muslim sisters and mothers in that part of the world. May Allah give them the courage. May Allah grant hidayah to the enemy. And if hidayah is not meant for them, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala deal with them in a manner that befits them. Inshallah, we'll have a nikah before the khutbah. Traditionally, when there's a Jumu'ah nikah, then the talk is on nikah. Nikah advice is given. The thing is that we're having a Jumu'ah nikah here almost every second or third week. This an overload of nikah. You might be thinking, Mawlana wants me to maybe try something adventurous. A number two, and if I'm on two, maybe he's asking me to get a number three. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us afiyah.
May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us, protect our marriages. One piece of advice for myself, for the newlywed, and for the nearly dead. Hold on to salah. As husband and wife, don't ever, ever, ever abandon salah. In fact, it should be an agreement, an arrangement, a covenant between husband and wife. That no matter what, come what may, we will never abandon salah. That must be a pact between the husband and wife. You can hold on to that. You can hold on to salah. You are making Allah priority in that home. When you make Allah priority in your relationship, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes care of the rest. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala says about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that he would be spending good quality time with his family. He'd be seated with his wife and he'd be completely immersed in that environment with his wife. But the moment Adhan was given, his whole attitude changed as if he never knew who I was. Priority. Give priority to your salah in your home, in your marriage, in your nikah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant you bliss, happiness and afiyah. وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين. A request for the nikah parties to come forward. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. The representative of the bride, Abdul Haq Hamid. Is he present? The bridegroom is getting worried here. Okay. جزاكم الله خير. The representative of the bride is Haji Abdul Haq Hamid. The witness to the representation, Brother Irshad Ghulam Muhammad and Brother Hassan Khan. The mahar has been stipulated by mutual agreement between the parties. Do I have your permission to perform this nikah? Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa na'udhu billahi min shuroori anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina. Man yahdihillahu falamudillalah wa man yudlilhu falahadiyalah. وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أرسله بالحق ونذيرا بين يدي الساعة من يطع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعصهما فإنه لا يضر إلا نفسه ولا يضر الله شيئا أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون يا أيها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي من نفس واحدة وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والأرحام إن الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا وقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم النكاح من سنتي وقال فمن رغب عن سنتي فليس مني ونسأل الله ربنا أن يجعلنا ممن يطيعه ويطيع رسوله ويتبع رضوانه ويجتنب سخطه فإنما نحن به وله Brother Bilal Baks with the permission of the representative of the bride Shiara Hamid Shaira Shaira Hamid and with the agreement of the mahar between the parties in the presence of the witnesses and this congregation I hand over to you in your nikah 
Shiara Hamid, have you accepted her in your nikah as your wife? Say nakahtuha wa qabiltuha. Barakallahu lakuma wa baraka alaykuma wa jama'a baynukuma fi khair. InshaAllah the sign is.